Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Hey, this is Daniel Markin with In Doubt, and today I'm joined once again by my friend Brian Hurlbut. He's a pastor who lives in Salt Lake City. And so naturally, we're going to be talking about his ministry among the Mormons. Uh, there's a large percentage of people in his area who are Mormon. And so his ministry looks different, and he has a lot of knowledge on this. He has studied this uh, as well. So I uh, hope you find this episode helpful. I know it's helpful to me. And it'll help you begin to think through how different Christianity is for Mormonism and how you can begin to have gospel conversations with Mormons. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This is Daniel Markin, and I'm joined again by my friend, Brian Hurlbut. Brian, how you doing? I'm doing fantastic, Daniel. You know, the last time that we talked... We talked about discipleship. We talked about your new book and, you know, the program that you've been curriculum and all these things you've been doing around the work of discipleship. And then at the very end of that episode, I was basically saying, hey, we should do a little bit of discussion about, you know, your ministry among the Mormons. So give a little bit of an intro to who you are, where you came from, and then obviously I've kind of given it away, but you're in Salt Lake City. Yeah. And you do a lot of ministry around a lot of Mormons. And I want to dive a little bit into... What is Mormonism and what are some of the differences as sort of a, a way to, for us to actually know the real Jesus better? Uh, because Mormons, as we'll begin to discuss, they will claim the name of Jesus. They will say they are Christians. They will, you know, there, there's a lot of similarities there. So, Brian, please introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah, so my name is Brian Brolbit, and I am uh, originally from upstate New York, which actually is interesting in the in the Mormon story, and maybe we can talk about that. But um, and I, and I didn't have any connection to Mormonism at all, or really much of a knowledge at all of Mormonism. There, I went to did undergraduate at a little Bible college in upstate New York. Got married, moved to Texas, went to Dallas Theological Seminary, studied historical theology, uh, pastored there for a little while, and uh, felt that the Lord wanted me to get out of the Bible Belt. Was really the big thing. It wasn't go to the land of the Mormons, you know, it was just go till some virgin soil, get out of the Bible belt. So I uh, began to look around and, and an opportunity emerged in Salt Lake City. And um, I, I don't know that I knew what I was getting into, but I came here and and uh, my wife and Jennifer and I at the time with two kids. Now we have uh, three, three daughters. Um, and we moved here 18 and a half years ago, planted a lifeline community in a suburb of Salt Lake City. So in Utah, if if listeners aren't familiar maybe with the demography and geography of Utah, but Utah's a very, very beautiful state. And almost all, not all, but almost all the population is within about an hour and a half north-south drive along the I-15 corridor. So it's a populous area going from just south of Provo, Utah to north of Ogden, Utah, with Salt Lake sitting right in the middle. But most of the population in Utah is in the suburbs. Salt Lake is not a huge, Salt Lake has like 200,000 people. It's not a huge city. But um, our church is in the, uh, I guess be the third largest city in the state right now. And that is West Jordan, Utah. 
and that is a suburb of Salt Lake. And uh, then I went on and I did a doctorate while I was here, focused in worldview, culture, philosophy, and how they played in and out of the life of the church. And and this has been a good place for me having done that because there's a lot of cultural exegesis that has to happen in a place like this where theology is on everybody's brain because what listeners might be surprised at, maybe not, is that anytime you have a really, really strong culture, you always have a strong counterculture. So here in Utah, everybody thinks about Mormonism and that is sort of a large elephant in the room. There's about a, an our valley. Our valley has 1.2 million people. About 50% of our valley are Mormons. 50% are not. So what's the other makeup? Well, a lot of, not all of, but a lot of the other makeup are disenfranchised people who are agnostic or atheist as well. So because you have a strong religious culture, you tend to get a strong counterculture. That comes with that. So I always, when I consult, I'll sometimes consult with people who are coming in to plant churches. I, I just uh, had lunch with um, a pastor who's only been here a year to just sort of talk a little bit about about ministry here and what it's like. And as we talked, I always try to hit the highlight that you got to really be prepared to deal with agnosticism and atheism in Utah, because. When you when you approach the cookie of Mormonism, you're going to eat the cookie from the outside in, meaning your focus is going to be a lot of people who have been burned over by the legalistic rigor of Mormonism, the works based, the social pressure of Mormonism, and that really comes pretty heavy. So to begin, I, I was mentioning this, you know. Um, Jay Warner Wallace is a, an apologist out of, I think, Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And when he was, you know, pastoring, he was a youth pastor at one point, and he would always take his youth ministry. They would, he would take them on a missions trip, and they would go to Salt Lake City. And, you know, you got all these excited high school students ready to go and minister, and they get trained up in evangelism, you know, various doctrine, and, and here's what to say, here's what you, we believe as Christians, right? You know, if someone, you're going to try and convert them. And so... You know, all these high school students would show up and the first task of the first day was, okay, go out in the streets, evangelize, talk to people, you know, and, and tell them about Jesus. And so he'd, he'd send them off and the students would all come back and on that first day and they'd come back so frustrated and angry. And, uh, and he would, of course, knowing this, he'd ask them, well, why, why are you so angry? And they'd say, well, they're all Christians. And he'd say, what do you mean? It's like all of them, they all, they all believe in Jesus. And what the students didn't know was that they were right there, Salt Lake City, down right in the hotbed of Mormonism, who claim the name of Jesus to some degree, right? They claim God and use a lot of the same language. And so what he began, you know, the first night, he would then say, ah, now ask them clarifying questions about the Jesus they follow. Because as they clarified the various questions about who Jesus is, then they began to realize, oh, that's a completely different religion uh, as to what they believe in. And so uh, with that, I want to launch from there and talk a little bit, you know, just tell us a little bit of the story of, you know, what's the background of Mormonism? You mentioned upstate New York, but what is Mormonism? And then what are some of the key distinctive pieces that we as listeners can consider when we see, you know, Elder James and Elder Mike come by, <laughs> you know, on their bicycles, right? Like I, I, I had lots of, lots of discussions with Mormons over the years and I spent a lot of time talking with them because once I realized, oh, they believe in something different, now we're talking, you know, and some of the, like the pressure points, what are some of those 
as we begin to think about life as believers in the true Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot there. And we'll try to give a, a, a big kind of a, a big picture. But in short, Mormonism started from a young teenage boy named Joseph Smith, who was born in Sharon, Vermont, and his family moved to upstate New York, but particularly Western New York, at a particular time in history that was after the First Great Awakening. So we're looking in the early 1800s. And at that time in upstate New York, it became known as what was called the Burned Over District. That area, and it was called the Burned Over District because there was all kinds of individuated religious fervor that started to happen. So people began to gain followings and little groups rose up all over the place. So you you know, had a group called the Oneida community. They were uh, like, had uh, polyamory going on in it. Uh, you had versions of the Shakers that were involved in, in New York. You had uh, witchcraft-oriented movements and things like this. And Joseph Smith, as a young man, and his family sort of became disenfranchised with the churches around them and didn't settle in them. And Joseph Smith alleged that the father and son appeared to him and that subsequent to that appearance, then he had uh, the angel Moroni appear to him and gave him a book. And that book was the Book of Mormon. And that that was a New Testament. And the New Testament entailed the content of Jesus' appearance after his resurrection here in the Americas to indigenous peoples. And that those appearances then gave sort of new revelation, if you will, that mapped onto and became another testament of Jesus Christ. And that became the central revelatory rallying point for Mormonism. It was published in 1830. And um, subsequent to that, he had additional revelations. He ended up gaining a following. That following moved and made their way out to Kirtland, Ohio, then from Kirtland, Ohio to Independence, Missouri, and then ended up settling in Nauvoo around 1840 in Nauvoo, Illinois. They were there for about four years, and Smith was uh, killed. He had been involved in nefarious activity himself. He had begun expanding um, his teaching out into polygamy, and he was taking uh, wives even of other men. And he had, you know, the counts are in the low 30s for the number of wives that he had. He ended up being killed in a jail in Carthage, Missouri, right across the river from Nauvoo, Illinois. And then the Mormons at that time splintered. A group of them followed his son and his first wife, Emma. They ended up in Missouri. And uh, now today they're known as the Community of Christ. They were for a long time known as the RLDS, the Reorganized Church of Latter-day Saints, smaller group. The larger group were led by a very entrepreneurial, charismatic leader named Brigham Young, and they made their way out west to Utah. Why did they come to Utah? Well, they came to Utah because at the time, Utah was outside of the United States, and it was a westerly territory where they could practice polygamy without violating U.S. law. So they got outside, and they settled here in Utah, set up camp and began to um, develop a, their own civilization basically out here. Then when Utah as a territory wanted to become a, a state, 
They could only become a state if polygamy went away because it was against U.S. law. So one of the primary tenets of Mormon theology is what's known as progressive revelation. Um, the prophet is the authority. And the prophet, who has two vice counselors and 12 apostles under him, so it's 15 total, they lead the church. The prophet had a revelation of the time, and that prophet said, okay, polygamy is no longer a viable thing. Well, why did he have that revelation in the early 1890s? Because Utah needed to become a state. And so it was a, a sort of a prophecy of convenience, if you will. They've had, you know, that's not the only one that's come along. A lot of their doctrines have changed over the years, correct? Yeah, so you have doctrines like that. You have doctrines of uh, African-Americans being able to hold the priesthood. Really, and it's not even accurate to say African-American in that sense. It's accurate to say Blacks holding the priesthood. And I say that because even if you go internationally, in the history of Mormon doctrine, it had to do with the pigmentation of your skin color that was what withheld you from laying hold of the priesthood. So in 1978... They had a revelation that that no longer held. But there's actually was a deep-seated theological embeddedness in Mormonism that when you even converted, you would, could become white and delightsome was the original phrase. It was a whole kind of a racist ideology and racist anthropology that was embedded in that. So here's a quick data point. Where did that come from? Well, that came from a doctrine that had to do with the pre-existence. It was the idea that, see, in Mormon theology, Heavenly Father and heavenly mother through a celestial kind of sexual act sire the spirit children the spirit children then come and take on bodies so if if you were a mormon daniel the thought would be that you were a spirit child who pre-existed you came and took on this mortal body as daniel markin and as daniel markin you take and you live this life and you go through an eternal progression and you have to obey certain laws of celestial exaltation to then arrive at the highest of uh heavenly states that you could arrive at and so you could arrive really at six different levels you could go to outer darkness that would be reserved for the worst of the worst and people who became Mormons, but then left apostate Mormons. You could also then go to the, to, uh, it'd be the telestial level. That would be like this, this sort of level that is probably akin to something like life on earth. You could go to the terrestrial level that might be life on earth, but on a little bit of heavenly induced steroids. It's a little bit better. And then you could go to the celestial level and the celestial level has three compartments within it. This is how you get the six. That's got three compartments. The highest of which is the highest form of exaltation, where if you're a male, not a female, but a male, you could become a god over your own world, and you could start and redo, so to speak, what Heavenly Father did here, which was create a world, have spirit children, foster a civilization. So, I mean... The missionaries aren't going to tell you that on visit one. No, I, th and that's the thing too, where, I, and I've heard you put it like this, you know, you sit down with them in your home and they talk a lot about family, but they're not talking about the fact that the end goal is to become a polygamous sex god. Like you're going to live with your many wives populating the universe, you know, with spirit children and stuff like that. But that's kind of the, I guess, the progression as things begin to evolve. 
But some of the things that I've always found really interesting for clarifying pieces when talking with Mormons when they sit down is, like you mentioned, the Heavenly Father is a person. Jesus is his son, right? But isn't, and correct me if I'm wrong, isn't Lucifer his brother? Right. Like Satan was his brother in the story. And then the Holy Spirit is is a separate person. It's not actually like we don't, they don't hold the doctrine of the Trinity, but the, the Holy Ghost, typically they call it, is is a separate person. And, you know, if you ask about the Trinity, they'll say, well, they're united in vision, but not as one God. Yeah, so a way to think about it, you, you have to understand Mormon theology, you have to upend your complete understanding of ontology. And here's what I mean. That is meaning just what a being is. So in Christian ontology, we typically, if we leave aside animals, we kind of think in terms of, of three distinct ontologies, right? We think of God, we think of angelic beings, which we would include demonic beings in that as fallen angels, and then we think of humans, right? So we have these kind of like three, and we go, okay, well, I'm made in the image of God, and we there's a likeness there, but we recognize that God and I are ontologically distinct. I'm not, and nor never will I be omnipotent, no omnipresent omniscient, right? That's that's just not available to me because there's an ontic difference between us, right? So in Mormonism, there's not. In Mormonism, there is not this type of God-man distinction. So you are a potential God in Mormonism. Heavenly Father was you at one time. Not literally you, but he was a human. He, he just did everything perfectly, right? So what does that mean then for Jesus? So let's think about it this way. If Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, sire, spirit, children, for our world, for our world, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother sired Jesus and Lucifer. They came and presented plans, so to speak, for redemption, plans for how this whole thing should operate. Heavenly Father chose Jesus' plan, rejected Lucifer. Lucifer became angry and fell, therefore the fall of Satan. Jesus then becomes a kind of progenitor. He's, he's primarily our elder brother. He is a progenitor of what you could be. He just did everything perfectly. I'll never forget. I came to Utah. It was my first visit before my wife and kids ever moved here. I flew up with two. Uh, in fact, our friend Kyle was on that trip. Yeah. And Kyle, myself, and another guy sat with a BYU law student. It was a female law student. And we were all the four of us were at dinner. Brigham Young University. Brigham Young University. Right. And we're sitting there and, and she started describing who Jesus is. And I'll never forget, Kyle, our friend, looked at her and said, you know, based on what you've said, it doesn't sound like Jesus is that different from me. And she looked back. She's very smart, very bright. She looked back and she said, you know, I'm not sure he really is. He just did everything perfectly. Mm. That's deeply insightful because in Christian theology, I'm not a God-man. In Christian theology, I'm not a God. In Christian theology, I'm not a potential God. In Mormon theology, 
you have a conflation of ontologies. So the famous Lorenzo Snow, it's called the Lorenzo Snow couplet. Man is as God once was, right? As God is, so man may be. Man might become what God is because God was once what you are. And he progressed. He's our model to follow in that way. And so we've got to obey the laws of exaltation. But here's the, the challenge. And this is what Jay Warner Wallace's students, I'm sure, found out. When they talked to people, people talked about the Savior. They talked about the gospel. They talked about the importance of the gospel in their life and embracing the gospel. But again, let's ask the clarifying question. What's the gospel? Oh, and you find out that the gospel includes a set of laws and uh, laying on of hands to receive the Holy Spirit, baptism, going to the temple. Um, it's a host of things now that are gospel ordinances that need to be accomplished. It's not this gift of eternal life that transforms you from the inside out that we receive by faith in Christ. Hmm. One of the things, though, that maybe some of our listeners have experienced is the uh, the prayer and the the asking of a testimony, right? And Mormonism is built largely on that testimony, on that religious experience, which if you trace that back maybe to some of the roots of uh, near in and around the Great Awakening, maybe that sort of thing has trickled down. But I have a quote here from Bruce R. McConkie, which basically, yeah. yeah, he says, who can argue with a testimony? Unbelievers may contend about our doctrine. They may rest the scriptures to their destruction. They may explain this or that from a purely intellectual standpoint, but they cannot overpower a testimony. And when he says testimony there, he's talking about that moment, that burning you felt when you prayed. And I, maybe you've sat down with Mormons and they say, well, would you pray with me? And they'll pray the, the prayer and then they'll say, did you feel anything? Because they're, they're trying to say, well, if you felt something, that was um, the moment that you awoken to this new truth, right? This testimony. And that, that now confirms everything. Everything else follows from that one subjective experience, mm -hmm. um, which to me as a Christian, there's, I, I have subjective experiences. I've experienced the presence of God. I have seen the Holy Spirit move. Yet I also am a Christian because historically it lines up. I'm a Christian because philosophically it lines up. It's, it provides satisfying answers. And it, and it has been my experience that a lot of the historical things with Mormonism are very questionable. You know, So love to hear a little bit about that idea of the testimony. Yeah, so, so th this is, I call it the trump card of Mormon experience. It's you're playing poker and you've got Trump and you drop down the trump card and the game's you know, you won the hand. So what happens is you get into a discussion with a Latter-day Saint and you're talking about definitions, you're talking about Christ, you're talking about Trinity maybe, uh, you're talking about gospel, salvation. And, and maybe you in the conversation get that conversation to a point where you go, okay, I'm pretty sure I got this. I've won the evidence war, right? Beware, because the next line, is going to be, you don't understand. You don't get it. I have a testimony. And you're going to go, well, testimony, like when I share my testimony, it's the story of how I came to Christ. That's not what that means. For them, as you said, it is a, is a moment. I asked one, a Mormon in my living room once, what is it? Tell me. I, mean, I want to know, what, 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 what do you say, testimony? What, what are you talking about? 
And they said, it's like a divine aha moment. It's what, what this individual said. It's sort of like the light goes on. And so for them, it is a way, it's almost a Gnosticism. It's a way of having a kind of superior knowledge. And so they'll say something like, if you knew like I know, then you'd really know. I asked this individual, I said, now tell me, how would you delineate your experience from, let's say uh, there was a, a, a Buddhist who was seated right next to you. And that Buddhist, I said, how do you know that Buddhism is true? And they said, you know what? I push away desire. I find myself through a meditative process at one with all things in this monistic world. And I actualize myself in that moment. And it's just wonderful. How would you invalidate that claim? You have a subjective witness, a testimony. You've had a spiritual experience. They've had a spiritual experience. So how do you delineate that yours is right and theirs is wrong? What is it that makes them in any way one qualitatively different than the other? And they said, you know, you have to understand, it's, they said to me, it's like chocolate milk. I said, what do you mean? They said, well, I have more, I have more chocolate in my milk. It's just more real. In other words, the simplistic nature of the response was, functionally, mine's more real than theirs is. And I said, the problem is they're going to tell me theirs is more real. You haven't answered the question, right? So this is such an enormous issue. And, and it makes some people, when they share the gospel with Mormons, feel like, well, I don't have anywhere to go with them. And I, and I think you do have places to go. And I think that's what I tell people is you need to burn the citadel of testimony up front in the conversation. So you begin in the conversation early saying something like, I need you to know, I have and have had a real experience of the spirit in my life. Here's what happened. And share, share an existential component of your faith. It's important and it matters. And he shared that. And the reason you need to do that is because immediately you are beginning to neutralize the issue of experience. A second thing you can do is begin to talk to people about how you validate experience. Ask them a question. Could God give you good feelings? Yes. Can God give you bad feelings? Sure. Conviction of sin is no fun. Um, can the devil give you good feelings? Yeah. Can he give you bad feelings? Sure. Well, then how do you know where your feelings come from? How can you know for certain? And the answer is you can't, so you have to find something outside of the feeling that validates the authenticity of that which you're feeling. Then you can press to something that's a little bit more substantive in terms of that. So I'll give you a quick illustration of how you can kind of go down this road in conversation. Um, maybe two quick data points. I was speaking at a high school graduation years ago in Pennsylvania. I was on flight on my way back got seated next to a guy who is one of the leading youth speakers in all of uh, Mormonism. He's published all over the place out here, writes all kinds of books. Um, and he and I got talking and I, I asked him, his name was John. And I said, Hey, John, I said, can you do something for me? He said, sure. I said, I want you to share with me what hard historical or scientific data is in favor of Mormon claims and here's the rules of our discussion you can't use testimony you're not allowed to so give me something outside of that so i just let him sit for a while five minutes went by and i looked at him i said well john what do you have 
Now, this is the key youth speaker for the Mormon church. And he said, he shared like one obscure data point. I can't remember what it was. And then he looked at me and he said, but I got to be honest with you. I said, what's that? He said, about 95% of it's my testimony. Wow, 95% of it. So I began to challenge him. Well, if you lived in our area and you went to Deseret Book or Seagull Books, these Mormon bookstores, you could go and you could pull a talk off the shelf that says, Jesus knows that I'm a Christian. And it's by this guy, John, by the way. On the back jacket, he talks about a conversation he had with an evangelical minister on an airplane that led him to begin searching for whether or not Mormonism actually taught grace or not. And that was born out of our conversation because he he was unsettled by the conversation. Second point, on another flight, I sat by a BYU professor coming back. I was coming back from a theology conference and I ended up sitting by a guy who taught finance. And he was leading a field trip back from Wall Street. Well, him, myself, and another pastor friend of mine were all seated in the row together. And so I thought, you know, I want to get in a conversation with him. So I found out what he did. And I said, man, that is really cool that you're doing this kind of thing. I said, can I ask you a question? I said, you know, I, I, I know a little bit about Mormonism, study it some. I said, as a professor of finance out here in Wall Street, taking your kids out here and taking them back, would you counsel your students to invest in markets that they didn't have hard data for or invest in stocks and bonds that they didn't have hard data for? He's like, no, I'd never do that. I said, well, here's my question. Then. I think you'd agree with me that our souls are worth quite a bit more than our dollars. So why would you encourage people as a Mormon to invest their soul in something based upon a gut feeling when you wouldn't encourage people to invest their finances based on a gut feeling? And that launched us into a discussion because what I was doing was trying to give an epistemological hook about how you know what you know and how you arrive at knowledge when you shouldn't separate spiritual knowledge in that way as a distinct kind of thing from other kinds of knowledge. But that's what Mormonism does. Mm -hmm. It's super fascinating as you begin to dig deeper and deeper into it. Um, Let me ask you this, just as... You know, as we think about Christianity, as we think about Mormonism, maybe just compare contrast quickly here. This idea of repentance. Yeah. We as Christians use the word repentance, and we mean turning away from sin, coming back to Jesus, believing upon the Lord Jesus again. You know, like we're going to do our best to, to not commit that sin again. We're going to walk in the way of Christ. Like, you know, we're transformed. We want to be transformed and, and fight against it. Mormons use a different definition of repentance, don't they? Oh, yeah. And what is that? Well, uh, I'll read you a quote. How about that? The prophet of the church in the mid-20th century, a key prophet uh, for a number of years, was a guy named Spencer Kimball. He wrote a book called The Miracle of Forgiveness. It's a very important book in Mormonism. Here's a section from The Miracle of Forgiveness. This is from page 203. Um, It's also cited in what's called uh, the, the Doctrines of the Gospel Student Manual that Mormons use. Okay. Repentance must involve an all-out total surrender to the program of the Lord. That transgressor is not fully repentant who neglects his tithing, misses his meetings, breaks the Sabbath, fails in his family prayers, does not sustain the authorities of the church, breaks the word of wisdom, does not love the Lord nor his fellow man. 
A reforming adulterer who drinks or curses is not repentant. The repenting burglar who has sex play is not ready for forgiveness. God cannot forgive. Listen carefully. God cannot forgive unless the transgressor shows a true repentance, which spreads to all areas of his life. If you read more in the miracle of forgiveness, what you learn is that Mormon repentance is about a few things. One is, have I ceased sin, according to Kimball, in all areas of my life? If I haven't, then I'm not repentant in one area of my life. Secondly, he has another section where he actually points out that when you repent of something and then you do it again. So let's take our young adults listening. You lust, you seek God's forgiveness, and then you lust again. Mormonism teaches, and Kimball taught, that you now became doubly guilty because you showed you weren't really repentant before. So now you repent again, but you've got two in the queue now. So you repent again, but then you do it again. Oh, you're triply guilty, quadruple. You just stack it up, right? So he has another line in another quote where he says, you're not really repentant unless you root out even the desire for sin. So I will ask young strapping LDS missionaries, have you completely licked lust in your life? Is it completely gone from your life? Are you all done with it now? Over? And the answer is, of course you're not. Of course you're still fighting it. Of course you still fail in it, right? But then you're not really repentant, which means you really can't go to the celestial kingdom. But really, do you know anybody that's done that? Do you know anybody that's completely licked sin in a particular area of their life and is done with it? No, you don't. So actually, it's an impossible gospel. You actually can't live it out because you'll never be able to meet the, the imperialistic threshold of repentance. It sounds hard. It is. It sounds like a lot of weight, and it sounds like that would burn you out quick. And it does. And so what's the, what's the good news, Brian, then? What do you tell them? Yeah, right. Yeah, so the good news is that uh, you can enter the rest, to quote Hebrews 3 and 4, that you can walk into the finished work of Christ who has completely forgiven you. Uh, and, and is all available in terms of your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin. And then, and they might think, well, what is that? I guess that just means, uh, you know, what Paul begins to object, uh, quote in Romans 6, I guess then grace can abound. We can just sin and sin and sin. No, no, no. Because then you'll be transformed from the inside out and you'll be so grateful that you'll just long to serve your Lord without the tyranny of the law. Right now you're living under the tyranny of the law of celestial exaltation and it'll be joyless and you'll never measure up and it'll be impossible and you'll end up finding out that the church has sold you a bill of goods and that they cannot d even deliver on that's right just a bill of goods you'll just fail you will fail 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 that's right so you can come rest yeah if only there was someone who did live that perfect life and oh, did uphold did. all of that, right? And, and that's the beauty of it. Yep. And so you can talk about the obedience of Christ. And so you take them to 2 Corinthians 5.21, right? He who knew no sin was made sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And what a beautiful, great transaction. And uh, yeah. So good. Brian, thank you. I mean, we should just close there. This was so good. It was so good to talk through this and and connect again and have you back on the program. So uh, thank you, my friend. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Take care. Thanks so much for listening. 
If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. In Doubt is a ministry that exists to engage young people with biblical truth and provide answers for many of today's questions of life, faith, and culture. Through audio programs, articles, and blogs, In Doubt reaches out to encourage, strengthen, and disciple young adults. To check out all the resources of In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Or if you're in a position or share a passion for the ministry of young people, you can support the ongoing mission of engaging a new generation with the truth of the Bible. First, you can pray for this ministry. And second, and if you are able, please consider a financial gift by visiting indoubt.ca in Canada or indoubt.com in the U.S. Your gift of any amount is such a blessing and an answer to prayer. Thanks.